And it's good to be back up front with you all after it seems like forever. And it's good to have folks viewing from all over the world online. Just um, that's really some special technology that keeps us connected. Hey, uh, a week and a half ago, Carolyn and I were in Germany. And we went there to visit our son, Andrew, who we haven't seen since Christmas of 2019. And so um, Carolyn was actually born in Germany. And after she graduated from college, she and her sister, Liz, who was also born in Germany, went back there and, and they saw the sites and visited the place where they were born and things like that. But I had never been to Germany personally, other than um, I flew through the Frankfurt airport. But I don't know that that qualifies as really being in Germany. Um, so I was excited. I was excited to see my son, but I was also excited just to see and experience Germany. And I had these, these visions of what Germany would be like, you know, from old movies. And uh, this is what I pictured in my mind, these green rolling he- hills and fields. And um, then uh, here and there, you'd have these quaint towns where You'd walk in and there would just be cobblestone streets and and this really beautiful European architecture and outdoor cafes and and right in the center of it all would just be this elegant church. And and do you know what I found when I got to Germany? Green rolling hills and fields and, and quaint towns here and there with cobblestone streets and outdoor cafes all centered around a beautiful church. And it seemed to be the case time after time after time. I think I got a little picture of just what one of those towns looks like. I mean, look how beautiful they are. You got, again, you got the rolling hills and the fields, and you got that architecture down there. You've got the cobblestone, and there are little, you can't really see the cafes there, but in the center of it all is a church. And one day, um, Carol and I took a train. And we went into Nuremberg, and we wanted to see all these historic churches and, and a castle, too. Like, doesn't everybody want to see a castle? And so we made our way in there, and um, here are some of the, here's the view. I think we've got a picture of this. This is from the Imperial Castle. So we were up in this castle, and it overlooks Nuremberg. And you can see, can you see some of these churches around? It's a little difficult to see some of them. You see that one? I've got some closer-up views of some of these churches. So here's one pretty ornate looking, uh, I think it's called Frankirk. Here's another, St. Sibyl. Here's one, uh, again, that's me right there. Just gives you some perspective of how massive that church is because I'm rather massive myself, you know. So there's St. Lawrence Church. Wow. I guess that's St. Egedon. I can't pronounce that properly. Again, notice the different styles in St. Elizabeth. Anyhow, there are all these beautiful historic churches, and, and Germany's full of them. It seems like every village or town that you go to, every city you come to, there are these churches. And initially, they were really the center of not only the town, but the center of culture, the center of society and influence. But sadly, today, many of those churches have become not much more than tourist attractions and museums. And they used to be a place where where kings and commoners alike would come together to worship God to connect with one another. 
And they're still at the center of these towns, but they're no longer the center of influence in those towns. It's interesting, um, this idea, the centrality of the church, not just in, in physical presence, but in influence, is not something that, God, that man made up, but it's actually something that God intended. God has always intended for the church to be the center of influence, the center of influence. And I want us to take a look at that this morning. To do that, we're going to be in Ephesians. It's Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at primarily verses 6 through 12. If you've got a church Bible, 1157 is the page. You could turn there and follow along. I always find that's helpful. If not, it'll be on the screen. But um, while you're doing that, let me just give you a little overview because it's important to understand the context This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He started the church in Ephesus, so he planted it. Um, And now he's writing, he tells us um, in in chapter 1, he's writing from from prison. Really, he's under house arrest in Rome. And uh, the point of of writing this letter is really to talk about the, the importance of the church, the role that the church is meant to play, why the church is to, to be that central figure in society. And so that's why he's writing. Um, he oftentimes refers to the church not as a, as a building, but a body, right? So the, the church isn't um, about bricks and mortar or, or in our case, you know, like steel and sheet metal. Um, it's all about the people. It's about the followers of Jesus, the disciples coming together. We are the church, and that's what he's referring to there. Now, um, it's interesting, he says that he's imprisoned, and it's because of his ministry to the Gentiles. So so a Gentile would be a non-Jewish person. So when you're reading through the Bible and you see Gentile, that just means a non-Jewish person. So we all fall into one of two categories. We're either Jews or we're Gentiles, okay? And so he's writing, his specific calling by God is to go and to proclaim this good news, which we call the gospel, this good news of Jesus, to the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. And because he was doing that, he ended up in prison, and then eventually he was killed because of that. So that's the general context of what, what's going on here. Now, it's interesting, if you start in chapter 1 and then you uh, continue to read through, you're going to see this word mystery. Mystery talks about this mystery of God, this mystery of God. And specifically, um, when he gets to chapter 3, he really hones in on the mystery of God. So what is this mystery? Well, he defines that for us in verse 6. Ephesians 3, verse 6. Listen to the mystery of God. He says, this mystery is that through the gospel, remember, that's the good news, of Jesus, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Now, when he says Israel, he means the Jews, all right? Um, members of one body, so that's the church, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So, through this gospel or good news, Gentiles, non Jews, gain equality with the Jewish people. Remember, they were God's chosen people. They had been set apart. Well, what Jesus is saying, and, or Paul is saying here about Jesus, is, is that now the two become one. They are united, that they, they share in certain things. It says that they share in the same inheritance, that they are members of the same body, and that um, they share in the same promises of Jesus. Now, 
Paul describes this gospel, this good news, in greater detail. If you go back to chapter 1, I'd encourage you to do that and just start reading through there. And he gives you more detail about um, really what the gospel is, this good news of God's love, which um, includes a number of different things for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's that faith that is, is the, the critical piece here that Jesus offers us. And, and when we have faith in him, there are spiritual blessings. That's part of the good news. There are spiritual blessings to be had. Um, we're, we're told that we're seen as holy and blameless in God's eyes. Can you believe that? Like you are seen as holy and blameless in God's eyes. The God that knows everything about you sees you as holy and blameless. And it has nothing to do with what you do right? Thank goodness. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. God sees you. That's part of the good news as holy and blameless. Goes on and talks about how we've been adopted into his family. We've been adopted. Some of you guys know about adoption, right? How special it is to be chosen, to be adopted into his family. That's part of the good news. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We receive the forgiveness of our sins. And then it goes on and it talks about how he has made known to us this mystery of God, this mystery of God. And that's what we want to continue to to see, that the mystery of God is this, that heaven came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Heaven came to earth to bring us sinful men and women, but sinful mankind into a right relationship with a perfect God. Heaven came to earth to bring us sinful people into a right relationship with a perfect and holy God. And not only that, but also brought Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles together as one church. No longer two different peoples, if you will, but one. There's unity in the church. There's unity. Even though we may look very different and come from different traditions, we are one when we have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, did you notice sort of the the picture that I was painting there? I I do this all the time to um, illustrate the point. Remember when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, and they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God this vertical relationship with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what was the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Notice, how does that become a reality? Because you can't do that in your own strength, but that's part of the mystery of Jesus Christ, that through this relationship with him, now we can love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength because he brings us together. We can love our neighbor as ourselves, Because he brings us together. No longer Jew and Gentile, just one, the body, the church. That's the mystery. See, the mystery is the good news or the gospel of Jesus revealed. That is the mystery that the Apostle Paul is talking about that has been revealed to him. Now, I want us to look at verses 7 and 8 and begin to unfold this whole thing. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. I think just in verse 7, it's interesting. Most of us don't consider 
it a gift to be a servant. And yet he says, I consider it a gift of God's grace that I'm a servant. Wouldn't that be great if we saw that for ourselves? We have been gifted to be servants. He, he goes on, although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. To preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Again, he's referring to this gospel or this good news of Jesus that he's been given this, this call to go to these non-Jewish people and tell them the good news, to preach this gospel of spiritual blessings that are available through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, uh, about this adoption as children of his, about the redemption that he offers us, about the forgiveness, and then to, to be used to illuminate this mystery of God to the world around us. But he keeps on going. Look at verse 9. He said, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, was kept hidden in God who created all things. The administration of this ministry is referring to how the church is to be central. The church is central to revealing God's eternal plan to the world. That it's through the church that people's eyes are open. It's through you and I that people begin to understand this mystery of God, this good news of God that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and that's not all. It's not just to this world. Listen to verse 10. I think this is phenomenal. It says, his intent was that now through the church, again, through the church, the church is central in all of this, the manifold wisdom of God, so all the wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I think this is so rich, and I, I don't want us to miss this, but the church is central to to um, God accomplishing his plan that he had from the very beginning of time. Now, notice again, the church is not a big, beautiful building. The church is humble, broken people who may gather in big, beautiful buildings or not so big and not so beautiful buildings to really worship God. That, that we as the church, through Jesus Christ, we come together so that we can then come together with God. That's the mystery of what Jesus accomplishes in us and through us. And, and one of the beautiful things here is that we're not just meant to, to stay together, but we're supposed to go. And we're to, to unveil this mystery to the world around us. But not only to this world, not only to every man, woman, and child where we live, work, and play. But did you catch that there's another realm there, there's another world that we're to um, reveal the mystery of God to. It, it says it right there. It says to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He, he's speaking about angels and demons and even Satan himself. That this has been a mystery. It's been kept from, from mankind for generations and generations that they, they couldn't understand God's ultimate plan. But it was also kept from the angels, the demons, and Satan himself even though they, they existed in that heavenly realm with God, they still did not understand the mystery of God's plan and his purpose. Satan actually played right in 
to God's plan and his purpose unknowingly. See, we have this, this interesting role to play here. I, I love visual images, and so I was trying to think how this plays out. Like, how is it that, that angels and, and demons, this heavenly realm, this hev- heavenly world, if you will, are, are looking to us, the church, to see God's plan unfold? And I was thinking about the Olympics, since we're right in the midst of the Olympics, and you think about like kind of the opening ceremony and you've got all the athletes down on the field, right? And typically you would have the stands filled with people as well. And they are watching intently. But millions and millions of other people are watching as well, but you don't see them because they're not present physically, are they? No, they're like us. We're watching from afar, but we're watching and there's great anticipation. We're eager to see how is this all going to unfold. Well, I think that's what's happening in the heavenly realm. We don't see them, but they see us. They're watching. And they want to see how God accomplishes his incredible plan that he's had from the beginning of eternity. How he's going to reveal this mystery. And, and they began to see that when Jesus first came to earth. And, and they began to see how he was reconciling sinful man to God, this perfect holy God, and how he was bringing together Jews and Gentiles alike to become the body of Christ, the church. But the plan isn't fully consummated yet, right? Because we're still in this awkward in-between stage because we're waiting for the end of the game, right? When, when all of a sudden heaven physically comes down to earth. You can read about it in, in the book of Revelation, Heaven will physically come down to earth. And that will be the consummation of the game. And then we live forever in his presence. That's part of the mystery of Jesus Christ that Paul's referring to here. Now, while we wait, we're not supposed to just be, you know, sitting around doing nothing. No, it's an active kind of waiting. We need to be going and we need to be sharing and helping people to see this mystery. We have a great responsibility here. And, um, you know, it, it means that we're not just called to, to gather together like this in a holy huddle, right? Like, this is nice. Like, I love getting together on Sunday mornings and, and seeing new friends and old friends alike and coming together and, and really worshiping God like you can't experience on your own. But these holy huddles aren't, aren't really what it's all about. This is part of it. This is part of being the church, right? Because this is a part where we connect with one another and then we also connect with God at the same time. But then we're to go out and to share, again, this good news with every man, woman, and child. The church is central. This is God's plan. He wants to use us to share the good news to the world around us and also to reveal this good news to the world that we don't even see, this spiritual world. We have a great responsibility. And we're supposed to do it all um, with love and kindness, and we need to be full of grace and mercy, but all of that has to be bundled in truth. Bundled in truth. And, and this, is, this is the concern. Um, I think for me these days is, I think um, the church is starting to, to fail. Rick did a great job of talking about truth, biblical truth. 
but we're starting to see that, that lost. So what happens when the church fails to be the church, when the church fails to proclaim the truth and to guard the truth? Well, I want to take us back to Germany. Let's go back to Germany in 1933. Now, um, in 19. 19- 23, and, and really the early, even earlier than that, the Nazi party was this very small and unpopular political party. Small and very unpopular. But by 1933, it was the largest political party, the most influential political party in Germany. What happened during those 10 plus years? Well, the Nazi um, party, they, they um, really were all about racial supremacy. And, and they believed that if you were not a Nazi, then specifically, and, and targeting multiple groups, but we most notably notice it with the Jews, that if you were not part of the Nazi party, if you weren't part of, of that um, just lineage even, that you were less than human. You were seen as less than human. And, and you hear that today, and, and you're wondering, how is it that this ideology of, of the Nazi regime grew and grew and grew like it did? Because it was once a very unpopular small party. Well, it, it's interesting when you do a little research, it wasn't that they, they took over Germany by force, that was much more subtle. They did it through things that might be familiar to some of us, like the freedom of the press, the right to assemble, freedom of speech. And they began to share this political propaganda. And they began to infiltrate the hearts and the minds of the people. And they began to take over that way. Um, they were promoting something that was completely um, unbiblical. It was a completely unbiblical worldview. And yet, it was taking over. It was time for, for people to, to rise up and, and speak out. And one pastor in particular did just that. His name is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you guys are familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Well, um, let me share with you something that he said. So uh, this is now April of 1933. Bonhoeffer raised the voice for um, church resistance to Hitler's persecution of Jews. He actually did it during a radio program. Um, he was the first, and then they shut it down midstream. But he, he um, declared that the church must not simply bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam a spoke in the wheel itself. You get that? The, the church must not simply bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam a spoke in the wheel itself. In other words, stop. Stop this. Don't just deal with, with the pain and the suffering that comes about, but stop it. And so he was part of this resistance, and um, 
started raising up other Orthodox biblical leaders in the church, and they came up with what they called the confessing church of their day. But despite that, the, the Nazi regime continued to come and infiltrate the church. And they, they did it in such a way that they began to remove the Orthodox um, pastors and leaders, and they began instead to put in those who were sympathetic to the Nazi beliefs. And all of a sudden, the church stopped being the church. And it became even complicit in what the Nazi regime was doing, the horrific, horrific things they were doing to people, most notably the Jews of the day. The church was complicit. Now, Bonhoeffer continued to lead a resistance for the next decade until April of 1943, when he was arrested, he was in prison, and then he was sent to Flossenburg concentration camp, where he was put to death by hanging. Carol and I, two weeks ago, went to Flossenburg concentration camp. This place is just 30 minutes from where our son Andrew lives. And you know, we just traveled through beautiful green hills, and fields. We saw towns with classical European architecture, cobblestone streets, cafes all centered around churches, just one after another as we made our way to Flossenburg. And it's hard to imagine today in this beautiful, beautiful country where you just feel so peaceful that such atrocities took place, how, how easy it was to lead a people, a nation, astray. Something that is so unbiblical was embraced by so many. Did you know that there were 40,000 concentration camps? Did you know that? Because each of these larger ones that we might know had all these sub-camps, Around. If you look at the map, it's just covered. How does something like that happen? For, for some, it's happened in your lifetime. We have parents, some of us, or grandparents that were alive during this time. It is not that far in our past. And it it's troubling. You know, I, I share this because of a concern of what's happening in our church today. Think about the 17th and 18th century here in the United States. And we began to, to spread out across the country, and we started to have towns pop up from here and there. And what was at the center of these towns? Do you guys remember? Churches. At the center of the town would be the church. And the church was the place where people came together to worship God. But not only that, they also came together to educate their children at this church. They would also come together, and that's where they would make decisions for their community and their society. The church was at the center of town, not just physically, but also influentially. And that's God's design. And what we've lost, I'm afraid, in our country as Germany had lost, was the centrality of the church and the influence of the church. It's not enough to have church buildings in the middle of towns because if you go up on Mill Mountain Star and you look down over Roanoke, what are you going to see? 
It's not going to look unlike Nuremberg, and you will see different churches across the valley. But do we still have the same influence? Are we fighting for the truth of God? Are we protecting the truth? And this is the critical piece. Um, We've been entrusted, as fallen and faulty as we may be, to protect the truth and to share the mystery of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, with every man, woman, and child where we live, work, and play. And not only there, but in the heavenly realms as well. We have a great responsibility. Now, uh, that's a lot, I I think, to take on um, ourselves. You know, while we may be faulty, God's plan isn't faulty. You know, and and we we are still the center of his plan. We are still the central means of communicating this good news to the world around us. We don't have to do it in our own strength either, because that's when I, I think we get overwhelmed when we think this is something that I've got to do. Well, that's the beauty of God. Listen, listen to verse 12 um, with me. He says, in him and through faith in him, so through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, with freedom and confidence. Um, Another version says, with boldness and confidence. God has given us this freedom, this boldness, this confidence to just come into his presence whenever we want, to talk to him anytime, day or night. We have the gift of Jesus, heaven coming to earth, again, connecting us to this perfect holy God, of Jesus coming and uniting people that are very different, Jews and Gentiles alike the body of Christ. This is what he does. And we can communicate with God. He has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us, to guide and direct us. We have something that is unbelievable at our fingertips. And not only that, but if you go back to verse 10, it said that he has given us his manifold wisdom. His manifold wisdom will be demonstrated through the church. Again, the church isn't a building. It's us. All this is available to us. We have a responsibility. And, and you can't guard the truth if you don't know the truth, right? I mean, how do you guard the truth? I, I'm afraid a lot of those Germans, maybe they just didn't know the truth because it doesn't take much to you just read Ephesians chapter 3 and you're like, this is wrong. Like the Jews and Gentiles... It's not like somebody's better than the other, and if anything, it would have been the Jews were better than the Gentiles, right? And it's said, no, like it's clear, just a cursory reading of the word, and you would have known this is wrong and should have taken a stand. See, this is why it's so critical. This is why we are constantly pushing people to be in the word on a daily basis. This is why it's so critical to be in small groups together, coming together coming together, and then connecting with God. This is why John will be out there at the end of the service with a couple sheets of paper signing everybody up. If you're not already in a life group and you're an adult, we want you to be in a life group. Because what happens in life groups? We connect with one another, and then we connect with God. Do you see how simple it is? This is the mystery of God, and this is how we play it out. And then we go forth, and we share it with the world around us, and the spiritual realm is watching as well. This is serious. There's a lot at stake. But we don't have to do it on our own. 
And we shouldn't do it on our own because then we'll fail. But we need to grow up. We need to mature. We need to be steadfast in our faith. And, and I want to just close with, with this from the Apostle Paul because I can't say it any better. But when he gets to chapter 4 and verses 14 and 15, listen to these words and the importance of everything that we're talking about. He says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that, that the church is meant to be central. And, and your master plan, that is from the beginning of time, that you kept hidden from generations of men, but you also kept hidden from, from all the angelic beings that, that you, you planned to use the church to illuminate the mystery of Jesus Christ and this good news of how he connects us, sinful people that we may be, with a holy, perfect God, how he unites us, Jews and, and Gentiles alike, into one family, into one body, into the church. Lord, we pray that we would do our part, that we would recognize that you've entrusted us with so much, but you've given us the power, you've given us the wisdom, you've given us your spirit so that we can carry it out. Now we pray, Lord, that we would do our part and that we would stand up and we would speak out, that we would be a center of influence in the most loving, kind, graceful, and merciful way, but we would never abandon the truth and we would stop allowing the truth to be trampled upon. Lord, lives are at stake here on earth and forevermore. Help us. Help us, Lord, to do what you have planned for us to do. We ask it all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.